0: Um, Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Valcon 2018. Um, I believe, uh, and I have for a long time, that this is one of the best conferences. Um, I learn more at this conference. I I don't check my email on my iPhone as often at this conference. I really think it's one of the best around because it combines um, the disciplines of the law and accounting and uh, financial advisory. Um, We tried really hard this year to focus on things you may not hear elsewhere and to create a diverse and cutting-edge program. Consistent with that theme, I'm especially pleased to introduce Jamie Sprayrigan, who really needs no introduction. So I won't tell you who he is, but I will try to tell you a couple things that you may not know about him. Um, Specific to this presentation, Jamie is the past president of INSOL, which is an international insolvency uh, group that studies things like international insolvency problems. Uh, Jamie, as you know, heads up one of the largest restructuring practices in the world and regularly engages in restructurings around the globe. He really is kind of an amazing person. So I asked some of my partners, uh, to come up with some app descriptions and here's a couple of them. He once ran a marathon because it was on the way and he probably has done that. He runs a lot. Superman wears Jamie spray pajamas. Ghosts sit around the campfire telling Jamie Spraybergen stories. And my personal favorite, Jamie is so great the U.S. trustee pays him quarterly fees. This topic is near and dear to my heart. Specifically as a lifelong, lifelong debtor's lawyer, I love the U.S. bankruptcy system. And I've followed several academics over the years <clears throat> that postulate, I think correctly, that our robust bankruptcy system directly correlates with the level of entrepreneurship, that in turn drives our economy to be the largest in the world. It is because of the discharge and fresh start concepts embedded in our system that the corporate renewal cycle allows for failure followed by recovery. But this is Valcon, and we're here to talk about value. So the idea behind today's topic was to compare restructuring laws around the globe, and that is how different countries' insolvency laws assess and affect value. So we were able to recruit someone who knows from personal experience the answer to this question. Please join me in welcoming the inimitable Jamie Spraybergen.
1: Thanks for uh, that, Patty. My mom always gives uh, people who introduce me my, their materials, so I thank my mom for that. Too. <clears throat> I'm pleased to be here uh, to talk about uh, the uh, value across different insolvency systems Uh, I don't, you know, purport to have the magic wand to understand uh, the nitty-gritty of every one of these systems, but I'm going to go through kind of a uh, whirlwind tour um, around the world of kind of different ways of doing things, and I think these slides are somewhere where people can access them, because I'm not going to go through the slides in in detail, uh, so you can look at those at your leisure if you are having trouble sleeping or something. Uh, but I, what I wanted to talk about is, you know, Patty touched on this at the end of the introduction. You know, I always characterize the U.S. bankruptcy system as the the bottom rung of American capitalism, uh, and uh, I always quote Frank Borman, who was the CEO of uh, Eastern Airlines. He he actually said, uh, "Capitalism without bankruptcy is like religion without hell," uh, and it's a good way to actually think about it. Uh, and. The systems in other parts of the world aren't all capitalist, though. And so it's not the bottom rung of capitalism everywhere else. uh, But in a lot of places, it is. Um, Having said that, there's been massive ferment around the globe uh, in amendments to insolvency systems. Uh, And uh, really, uh, I think mostly progress, but uh, a long way to go. I'm not one who believes that everybody should have uh, the same insolvency system. Uh, and especially that they should have our Chapter 11. Uh, I don't think that's um, the way to think about it. And more importantly, I always talk about this, uh, you know, there's a massive socio-political, cultural uh, aspect to the bankruptcy world. Uh, And there's value judgments. uh, There's big-time political judgments. There's obviously lobbying uh, in Congress to change the law to... Uh, bended to whose interest is doing the lobbying. I always do note there's no debtor lobby. That's the one lobby we don't have in DC. There's not any group of companies that are getting together and say, hey, in a few years, I'm going to be going bankrupt. I'd like to have a really good bankruptcy law. So most of the lobbying is, is actually done by uh, creditor groups or other kind of stakeholders, other than people like ABI and the ABI Reform Commission, which I was proud to serve on with Sam and others, and which I think did a lot of good work. Uh, And, in fact, as part of that program, we did look also at different insolvency systems around the world. I'm going to actually talk about a few things uh, that we thought we could learn from. Um, There's – I sort of picked um, these countries at random. Uh, I wanted to, you know, have some Asia, uh, some Europe, uh, U.K., uh, some Latin America. Uh, There's a whole bunch more we could have talked about. Um, South Africa has recently amended – its system substantially to try to uh, better maximize value and sort of generally have come the way of Chapter 11, although it's not nearly the same. And, in fact, they they enacted their equivalent of Chapter 15, but it's got a reciprocity provision, so it will only apply if the country at hand also has uh, enacted Chapter 15. We don't have that in the U.S. Uh, You have... um, a number of other countries in Asia, Vietnam, has recently amended their system. So obviously, in forty-five minutes, I'm not going <laughs> to be able—probably won't even be able to cover all of this. Um, but uh, there's also a really important, what I call, extra statutory element uh, to this, and it kind of goes with the cultural and the socio-political stuff. Um, and it's what I call the rescue culture, uh, and it's really all the you people in this room uh, and people around the world. Uh, who do what we do. And so you can enact whatever system you want, um, but if you don't have the set of professionals and judges uh, and both lawyers, finance folks, uh, et cetera, you get a completely different result, even if, you have the, even if you have the exact same system. And I'll talk about that a little bit more, too. And there's a lot of people who talk about how great how great it would be if we could get everybody on the same page and have all the systems the same. Um, again, I don't think that'd be so great. And actually, I cite to the U.S. all the time. We have in our Constitution that we're supposed to have a uniform bankruptcy code. We, we do have a uniform bankruptcy code. But it does get applied in a different way, in my view, uh, in Vegas, in New York, uh, in Los Angeles, in Miami. Depends on what the problem is. And that's you also get the cultural and socio political. Aspects coming in, infusing our own uniform bankruptcy law, and so when we talk about it around the world, uh, it's uh, even more so. So, I I don't need to tell you about our our Chapter Eleven system, um, but you know we we obviously have we put in our code in 1978. After thrashing around with the Supreme Court for a while, we finally had it for real in '84, uh, and it's had um, a Um, big uh, impact around the world as it's grown in the U.S. Uh, This is the uh, 40th anniversary of the Bankruptcy Code. For some reason, everything gets done on the 8s in American bankruptcy law. The original one was 1898, then there was one in 1938, and then there was one in 1978. And, Sam, I don't think our ABI Reform Commission package is going to be done in 2018, uh, so we'll have to wait for some other 8, I think. Uh, But... um, you know, the, I always talk about the major things that we did in 78, and this is relevant to looking at a bunch of other systems. We put in our debtor-in-possession system. Why did we put in our debtor-in-possession system? It's always important to keep it in mind. We didn't put it in because we thought it was such a great idea to have a debtor-in-possession. Uh, we actually put it in because we thought it was less worse than not having a debtor-in-possession based on pre-1978 activities when trustees were put in. And there was a lot of value destruction and the incentives for a trustee, none of them were bad people. Some of them were brother-in-laws of the judges um, who were put in. Uh, There was no controls over who got appointed, Uh, and there was no incentive actually to finish the case, because when the trustee finished the case, trustee was out of a job. So it's kind of a, if you read the legislative history, it's not, hey, this debtor in possession thing's a great thing. It's compared to what? And so we put it in, and then I mentioned the extra statutory element of it. Well, because of To this day, a continuing discomfort with our debtor and possession system. A lot of you in the room have uh, been beneficiaries of this. We have uh, the CRO practice, and we have a lot of the financial consultants, and we have independent directors, and that's all nowhere in the statute. But why is that there? If you think about it, it's because there's this never ending tension between the fact that, you know, if you want to state it negatively, the bums who cause the problem get to stay in control when they file the case, and how do we protect everybody against that? Well, again, if you go back to the legislative history, it said, well, one of the reasons, another reason we're doing that is because if you don't let them do that, they're gonna run out the clock and not file until the very last second because who's gonna slit their own throat? Uh, And that was, again, part of the rationale for the debtor in possession. And I've had conversations with a lot of folks around the world who are kind of flabbergasted that we have this system uh, but they all assume it's because we think it's so great. And I always say it's it's just compared to what? I, it's, uh, I just quote Winston Churchill, who said about democracy, is, it's the best form of government of all except for all the others. Um, and so, you know, th- that's a way uh, to think about it. And it's relevant to talking about some of these other um, uh, statutes. So, you know, obviously we have our – I mentioned the debtor in possession. The other thing is obviously we put in our automatic stay, which is – you know, intergalactically powerful and extraterritorial effect in a particular, I say, uh, arrogance of American law. Uh, And it's amazing how annoying that is to a lot of people around the world uh, that we have that. Uh, And, again, other countries can say they have that and can do it. The problem is because our economy is so large and so many creditors deal with the U.S., we have the ability to actually enforce it. Not always, but enforce it more than anybody else. And I'll talk a little bit about that. And then we put in our debtor-in-possession financing system uh, at the time, too. And, again, there continues to be, you know, massive um, misunderstanding of that around the world uh, because they think it just lets people get money who don't otherwise qualify for it. And I explain to them there's all these standards to be able to get debtor-in-possession financing. And you, it, you, I, even clients in the U.S. come to me and say, i got to file for bankruptcy because – I need a debtor-in-possession loan. And I'm like, well, tell me about your assets, because you may or may not be able to get one. Um, but uh, there's misconception around the world that that is easy money. Um, and it's not. But it's easier money uh, than if we didn't have the system. And that's been adopted in a decent number of places with uh, you know, sort of home country uh, uh, changes to it. Um, let's see here. Uh, so you know, Australia, not a bad example. Uh, Australia, uh, and again, as I said, I'm not going to go through these particular slides in in massive detail, but um, to me, Australia illustrates something that I call uh, convergence. Uh, The words on the page in Australia are actually among the most secured creditor-friendly structure uh, in the world uh, and actually the most risky uh, to directors with both civil and potential criminal liability and even administrators or receivers or whoever comes in there uh, has uh, large risk of potential personal liability. And if you talk to professionals around there, there's a lot of them that don't have their assets in their own name uh, because of the uh, gravity uh, of that risk. And their system is really um, the English system, but the English system from the 1800s. The English have updated their system, and Australia didn't. Until recently, they did put in... Uh, something that they call a um, a safe harbor, which gives directors more comfort than they used to have, not the level of comfort we have in the U.S. Uh, And I'll digress a minute because I forgot to mention the director point. You know, in the U.S., when we talk to directors, they're always terrified of potential personal liability. And and on an absolute basis, they should be. But on a relative basis, U.S. directors – have about the hardest time being liable for anything of any directors of anything in the world, uh, both civilly and criminally. Uh, you're allowed to be completely incompetent as a director in the United States, uh, as long as you're getting good advice and you exercise the business judgment rule. If you get into entire fairness, that's a different story. Um, but again, there's a misconception of a lot of US directors that they face this horrible risk of liability, where other places in the world, it's, it's a lot worse. So anyway, the the Australian system is, I I use this word convergence because you um, read the words on the page and they're kind of disturbing. And you say, how am I going to reorganize a company here? And then you talk to the Australian uh, practitioners and they'll say, well, come on, it doesn't really work like that. We've kind of figured out some workarounds and we have a way that we don't just liquidate the company or hand the keys to the uh, secured creditors every time. Sometimes you do. Uh, And to me, that's interesting, and you you see that theme go through a lot of other countries that I'm going to mention, although some have had no convergence uh, at all. Um, But the the Australian system, you know, they have a deeply embedded rule of law, which is unlike some of the other countries I'm going to talk about here, Uh, and uh, they have a very sophisticated uh, insolvency profession. Uh, they sort of have what I, what I call the rescue culture, but again, because the structure of the system is different, it's a little bit more the foreclosure culture. But they do have pretty sophisticated professionals. And in the stuff we've had there, we've, in the main, mostly, not always, but mostly figured out a way to reorganize companies, even though they don't really have a reorganization uh, statute. And just to make sure I'm hitting on the theme that Patty asked me to address, this is, you know, how do you maximize value? in each one of these places, and how do you compare it? And if you just did the words on the page in Australia, I think you'd destroy a lot of value. It'd be pretty advantageous for the banks. There's only five big banks in uh, Australia. Uh, They do sell their debt to some extent these days. They didn't used to. Uh, But it's a very – it's like Canada in that sense. There's just not that many banks. Uh, And um, they used to kind of rule the roost. Uh, And um, what they said goes – there's still a lot of what they say goes, but there's been more reorganization stuff creeping in. Bermuda. And Bermuda is a little bit of a proxy for you know, offshore. Uh, you have Caymans. You have BVI. You have the Channel Islands. You have the Turks and Caicos. Each one's got a little bit different system. All of them have uh, some tangent off the U.K. system. Uh, and, again, uh, some of these uh, systems uh, have not sort of kept up. Uh, with even changes to the UK law, uh, which is I'll get to, but has improved somewhat. Uh, but they've developed, and this is again what I call convergence, because they don't have debtor in possession, uh, and the liquidators are supposed to come in and take control and throw out the board and uh, management and, and run the thing. But they've come up with this thing again, completely extra statutor- uh, statutorily called light touch liquidations. Where it's a sort of quasi pseudo um, uh, debtor in possession with um, a provisional liquidator kind of looking over your shoulder, uh, ready to jump in if things were to go awry. Uh, and again, um, you've seen um, some cases choose like uh, uh, Bermuda instead of the US system because it does have the potential advantage of being faster. Uh, It's a lot less transparent, some people like that, some people don't. Uh, And um, there's um, less rights for the junior creditors. Uh, And so you might be able to get some things done more quickly. Uh, And I know I jump back and forth a little bit, but, you know, I always compare that to our system, which, you know, we didn't put in our code in 1978 to say, let's be the most efficient bankruptcy system around, because we have this requirement of transparency, we have creditors committees, We have you need all sorts of things approved by judges. We have lots of pieces of paper that you need to file, schedules and all those things. And that, for sure, is not the most efficient. Uh, If you want it to be efficient, you'd use somebody else's system, but there'd be a lot of people whose rights would be trampled over. And so there's a judgment call that was made in our system of some sort of balance. A lot of the world thinks it's out of balance. They can't believe the disclosure requirements, that people can just sit in court and listen to hearings, uh, that you can get copies of all the pleadings. In Bermuda, a lot of the pleadings nobody can get unless you're a party, and the judge says it's okay to get them. Uh, so uh, it's it's kind of a different system there. But, again, I think there's been a decent amount of convergence. It's still, you know, very different than uh, the U.S. We've obviously had a lot of situations where you've had a U.S. company that's incorporated in Bermuda, uh, and um, uh, they've done tandem proceedings or a Chapter 15 in the U.S. and a Bermuda proceeding or vice versa, Chapter 11 and then, Uh, a a Bermuda Bermuda proceeding to uh, implement things. Um, Now, again, where the offshore stuff is going to have huge um, relevance uh, going forward is if we ever have something uh, bad happen in China, and people have been predicting that for quite a long time. Um, It might even happen one day. Who knows? I'm not here to predict that. But almost all the Chinese structures are BVI, Caymans, Bermuda, uh, incorporated. And if Chinese companies are going to go down and get in trouble, you're going to have a lot of those as offshore proceedings. Uh, and how you maximize value there is going to be really interesting because the structures keep the creditors at least one step, if not more, away from the hard assets on the ground in China. Uh, and so how that's we've seen it play out in just, I think, in its infancy. Uh, but if you have a lot going on, it's going to really be stretched as to how um, the mix of the Chinese uh, BVI, and a lot of them are BVI, but some are Caymans and Bermuda-incorporated entities, um, play through. So um, Brazil. Brazil is a place where I'd say there hasn't been that much convergence. There's been a huge amount of activity over the uh, Last, you know, three, four, five years, they've obviously had their car wash problem with the massive corruption binge, and that's caused a lot of bankruptcy itself, but just the economy's caused a bunch, too. They've updated their system, um, but their system is, doesn't interact um, that well with the rest of the world. Uh, and, um, you know, for example, they don't have an absolute priority rule, which is a wonderful thing if you're old equity. Uh, and there's a lot of hold-up value. Uh, and that annoys a lot of creditors who are not going to get 100 cents on the dollar if the equity can still get a recovery. Again, that's not sure why it is that way, but but it is that way. Um, they have built up a pretty good uh, rescue culture with a lot of Brazilian insolvency professionals having you know, sophisticated expertise. Uh, there's been a lot of Chapter 15s here of Brazilian entities. Um do I think if I compare all these other countries that Brazil maximizes the value the most? I wouldn't say that. I would put them a little bit, uh, in the, you know, the bottom two thirds, even though they've, uh, made a bunch of progress. Canada, our next door neighbor. Um, you know, I, I love the Canadian bankruptcy code. I always say, you know, ours is like 100 pages long. Theirs is like 20 pages long. And everything else you just kind of make up. Uh, and there's massive room for, creativity and flexibility and judge-made process. They've imported a lot of what we do uh, into their system. Uh, There's a lot that just isn't in the statute, but the judges have said it's okay. Uh, 363 sales, they don't call them that. Debtor in possession loans, they don't call them that, but things like that. Um, They do have something interesting, and uh, they have this thing called a monitor, which we don't have debtor in possession, or they don't have debtor in possession, um, but they don't completely throw out management. And the Monitor is not a trustee and not a CRO, and he's got a bunch of power. He's got a bully pulpit. Uh, and the ABI Reform Commission report uh, suggested that we might think of having such an animal here in the U.S. And I think that, again, goes to our historic discomfort with our debtor and possession system. And the Monitor um, structure is actually you know, pretty sophisticated uh, and you know, I think actually works uh, pretty well. I would put Canada near the top of if you say you know who maximizes value in their bankruptcy processes? Very sophisticated judiciary, uh, and difficult cases uh, get done there, and you know relatively um, with relative alacrity uh, and with less destruction of value uh, than I see in in a lot of other places. So I think Canada is a kind of interesting system. Not really to emulate, because this goes back to, you know, they have a huge rescue culture. They have a very sophisticated bench, bar, uh, financial professionals, deeply embedded rule of law. uh, And um, for them, it's also the bottom rung of American capitalism. So you can't say, oh, Canadian system is a great system. Go use it in Brazil. That wouldn't work, because even if you had the same words on the page, as I've said, it just would be a a much different uh, result uh, and way of, uh, way of uh, executing on it. Um, China. China, I don't know if most people realize this, but China is the country in the world that has the bankruptcy system that is most similar to Chapter 11. It's really amazing. They wrote it. You know, it took them about 10 years to write it. Um, I was actually involved in a couple little things on it. Uh, and if you read the code, it's pretty good. Um, but they don 't have a rescue culture, uh, and they got a long way to go and the government uh, there 's a huge socio cultural political aspect to everything that happens there, and the government has not really wanted companies to go down or even uh, have change of controls. Uh, somehow the companies end up uh, getting bailed out, uh, and you don 't really see equitization that much. Um, And as I said, you have a lot of interference by the government. You have a, you know, there's been an anti corruption campaign there, which has made a lot of progress, but I think something like 400,000 people have been uh, put in jail, but there's a long way to go on that, too. So it's an interesting system. Now, I do say, you know, they put this in about 10 years ago. If you looked at the US in 1988, after we put on our code in 1978, now I I, I started practice in 85, uh, and as I said, our code didn't really get going until 84. We, we weren't necessarily so great 10 years into our code uh, in how to execute on it, in the judges who used to be referees believing in the debtor and possession system. There were more trustees appointed back then uh, because that's what had happened pre-'78. Uh, and there's been a lot of developments, and obviously we've had hundreds of amendments. Um, so 10 years is, uh, is a blink of an eye. I, I always quote uh, to my... Chinese friends, Zhou Enlai, who was Mao's foreign minister, he was asked whether the uh, French Revolution was a success. And uh, his answer was, it's too soon to tell. Um, and so 10 years is just kind of like blink of an eye. Uh, and so it's kind of an interesting system. We'll see how it develops. If you don't get rid of the political interference, it's, it, right now it's a little bit stillborn. Uh, the cases that have no political implications, and there's a lot, those actually do get done uh, much better. Um, But if you got a bunch of jobs involved, they all have political uh, implications. Germany. Germany's uh, been trying pretty hard um, to um, change their system. So they had what used to be called the uh, 21-day rule, and they still do, that if you're insolvent, you have to file for bankruptcy, their version, within 21 days. And if you don't, and your director, there's potential civil and criminal liability. And so when you think about that, what does that do? Um, that's a real hindrance to entrepreneurial activity uh, because people stay so far away from the line because if they have to decide between taking some business risk or personal liberty risk, it's a pretty easy call. And so, you know, I talk about our directors being difficult to hold um, liable for anything. Um, that's not its own free lunch, um, because, you know, you could say they engage in more misbehavior, but they do have more license and rope to go take entrepreneurial risk, whereas this 21-day rule thing in Germany um, encourages lack of risk-taking uh, and sort of ossification of a system. So they've been so enacted like two different waves of uh, new bankruptcy laws because they didn't have debtor in possession. Uh, they had this 21-day rule, and a, I forget what he's called, an administrator or a liquidator, or somebody was, came in, and there was a whole profession of people in uh, Germany whose job it was to uh, sell off these companies, and that's what all you did. When they went into bankruptcy, you just sold it off real quick. And there was massive destruction of value, even at the senior secured creditor level, uh, but below that, um, e- even worse. And so, you know, one of the things... Um, uh, that has happened with a lot of German cases is they've done these Comey shifts to get them into the U.K. Uh, and I've always only half-joked that if you're having a debate about you know where to file a bankruptcy case in a cross-border situation and you talk to a guy from Bermuda, after you sort everything out and he compares it to four different systems, it's always Bermuda is a great place. And same thing if you do it with a U.S. guy, same thing if you do it with a U.K. guy. If you do it with a German guy, they're like, no, file in the U.K., um, which is interesting, uh, and they're one of the few uh, that do say that. Um, so they're kind of working on it. Um, they've made some progress, but I would say a, a decent way to go, and that's where you get into the convergence. People have figured out that it's not a great thing to just liquidate the company and sell it off. So instead, they do a Comey shift, they get it into the U.K., and they do a scheme there, which I'll get to in a minute, and – um, that preserves and maximizes value uh, in, a, in a better way. Um, I will note, uh, again, it's not on the slides, you know, our, our guys in Germany are actually working on a pretty uh, big um, case in Croatia. Uh, actually, it's a big grocery store chain called uh, AgriCorp, uh, and it's actually 15% of the GDP of the country, so that's pretty big. Uh, and they actually didn't have an insolvency system, and this company needed to go into bankruptcy. So what they do? They just wrote a special law for AgriCorp uh, And that's going through the Agricore bankruptcy proceeding in, in Croatia. And actually, it's pretty forward-looking. And the company, I think, will end up reorganizing, knock on wood. Uh, and that's another interesting way of, you know, sort of preserving and maximizing value. If you go back a little bit away, when Parmalat in Italy went down, which was one of the biggest companies in Italy, they did the same thing. They passed a special law. Uh, just for Parmalat. Uh, so, you know, there's more than one way to uh, to skin the cat. Uh, Germany, I won't go through all of that. India. India is really interesting. Um, they have a new bankruptcy law as of uh, about six, nine months ago, uh, and it's uh, amazingly um, aggressive, forward-looking. Whether it maximizes value or not kind of remains to be seen. First of all, uh, there isn't convergence in India because it's a closed legal system. Non-Indian lawyers can't practice in India. If you have a cross-border matter, they can hire people outside of India to work on Indian matters outside of India. Um, But they did put in the automatic stay. Uh, They don't have debtor in possession, and a lot of this is because you had a lot of zombie companies that were borrowing money from state banks and not paying it back, and the banks weren't doing anything. And so the government said, we own most of these banks, we're going to require the banks basically to call defaults, and you're going to have six months to sell the assets and reorganize, and the old equity can't bid on the assets. Uh, and the idea is basically to sort of drain the swamp, to use a overused term. Um, and uh, they're right. Literally, the six months on a lot of these companies is coming up right now. There's a tiny revil- relief valve for the judge to – um, extend it a little bit. We're going to see if some of those get extended. Um, we're going to see what these companies, what price they sell for. Um, but it's, uh, it's sort of people read about uh, when they stopped uh, having the large cash bills in India. This has been almost as big a move as that, and it's really shaken the system, uh, and it's working its way through. Uh, they sort of cut and paste it from some Chapter 11 stuff, some U.K. scheme stuff, some of their own stuff, uh, and it's it's pretty interesting, and they've been they've had like three or four problems, and the government's like amended the bankruptcy code within like a week or two to fix whatever somebody saw what the problem was. So it's amazingly functional. And if people don't know, most Indian bankruptcy cases before this took ten to twenty years uh, to work their way through the system. So it's it's a pretty interesting thing that's going on there. Singapore, uh, Singapore. As they, they're self-professed. They want to be the, what they say is the Delaware or New York of Asia. And I actually think they're, it's the Trojan horse. What they really be, want to be is of the world. Uh, so they're, people call Singapore Inc. for a reason. Um, they've recently amended their code. They put in extraterritorial effect like ours, except they had a tweak because they didn't want to be as arrogant as our law. They, they, it only exists if you have personal jurisdiction. Uh, over them in Singapore, and a lot of stuff comes through the Singapore banks, so we'll see how that works. But there's deeply embedded rule of law there, too, but there isn't in their neighbors, Malaysia, Indonesia, and they're trying to convince people to bring their insolvencies there. When I say convince, I met with a, a government delegation. It was bankruptcy judges, government ministers, top practitioners, glossy brochure come to Singapore, file your bankruptcy case. Really, uh, quite amazing. And they're putting on seminars every two or three months and asking what they can do differently. And, um, again, it's just started. This is, again, uh, late last year. Uh, But this is a strategic move. And, by the way, Singapore did this with arbitration 15, 20 years ago, and they're now one of the biggest sites for arbitration in the world. And that's the model um, that they're using. So Singapore – and, they again, this is – If it works, it will maximize value. If the Indonesian and Malaysian creditors or equity holders thumb their nose at the Singapore system and Singapore isn't able to enforce their orders, um, then maybe it's not going to work. We did ask the Singaporean minister that precise question. And she said, well, you have to remember all of their kids are in school here. So I thought that was interesting. Um, So uh, we'll see how their system works. U.K. I've mentioned U.K. a bunch here. Um, so the U.K., uh, obviously we've all heard about Brexit, so everything I'm going to say could be wrong whenever Brexit happens, uh, and that's actually a massive uncertainty. So the U.K. has become you know, quite the center of insolvencies for um, Europe. I mentioned Germany and all these Comey shifts. And you've had, you know... You know, people talk about form shopping in the United States between states or venues. I mean, they do it between countries there. And the Europeans sort of got upset, and they have this thing called the European Insolvency Regulation, which they've amended a couple of times to make it more difficult to do the Comey shifts, uh, but didn't completely stop them from being done. When um, pre-Brexit, which Brexit hasn't happened yet... <laughs> if you had a scheme sanctioned in the UK, um, it wasn't for sure, but it was, for the most part, probably going to be honored in whatever European country it was relevant in. Nobody really knows what's going to happen post-Brexit because they haven't worked out the laws, and it could be an unintended consequence of Brexit is that it um, is pretty bad for business uh, for UK insolvency folks. Uh, If you can't get... Your orders that you're having entered in London enforced across the continent, that's going to be a big difference than when you can't. And so that's all going to have to be uh, taken into account. Now, if you just look at the way their system is right now, I'd say they're about in the middle of the pack in maximizing value uh, because they don't have cram down, um, what we call cross class cram down. They don't have. You can't have in our system, if we have one non-insider impaired accepting class, we can jam the plan on everybody else if you otherwise satisfy all the rest of the tests. Uh, In the UK, you need every class to vote yes. And vote yes by 75% uh, in amount. I think it's 50% in number. If you get that, then it does bind uh, all the holdouts. (laughs) And in that sense, it's actually a pretty efficient system. Uh, Protection for the minority is less Uh, there than it is here. Much less transparent system. Actually, less costly uh, system as a result. There's a trade-off. Less rights for a lot of people. Um, Less ability to know what's actually happening in the case. Uh, But there's been all sorts of folks who've come up with creative ways to get cases into the UK, and the UK judges have, for the most part, said it's okay. People had these Comey shifts where they you know, moved their headquarters to London, and they had a few board meetings and that's been found to be enough. We did one where we changed the law of the credit agreement from Germany to UK law, and that was found uh, to be enough. There has been some talking uh, of some level of discomfort with the UK judges as to you know what level of connection you need in the UK to um, bind everybody else. Uh, but so far, it's been you know kind of talk. Um, and so uh, the UK is you know really among the most interesting because. They have a, again, highly sophisticated um, rescue culture, although, again, rescue culture not the same as ours, Um, deeply embedded rule of law, which they've actually exported around the world to the Commonwealth countries, Uh, and uh, even exported into Europe. I mean, you'll see if you're dealing with a big French company and they've borrowed money from a French bank, a lot of times the credit agreement will be in English and have UK law apply, uh, and really that they don't... They'd rather use the UK legal system. It's an incredible asset of the UK. uh, And my own view is, one way or the other, they'll figure out a way to muddle through even after Brexit. Um, But there's a lot of uh, people concerned and a lot of folks trying to figure out planning, like, should we hire people or shouldn't we? You know, things like that, not knowing where uh, the system is going to go. So that's my tour around the world. Uh, I could go on to a whole bunch of other... Countries, but I think I got about five minutes left, uh, Patty. I don't know if folks have questions. Happy to take some questions or hit the coffee break early. Seven minutes. I'm talked faster than I thought. The U.S. At the top of that list? Um, no. Uh, well, I think it's it's complicated because I say our system has a bunch of trade offs in it, and um. The transparency and requirements of all the stuff you got to do to get through an 11 makes it quite expensive. I think in the larger cases, it probably does maximize value among the best. In the middle market, uh, and again, that was a big discussion in the ABI ABI reform commission report, transaction costs can eat these companies alive. And, you know, we've had this tradition of one size fits all for our bankruptcy code. And I think there's a pretty good argument that maybe one size fits all isn't right, given you know, some of these smaller cases that, you know, basically can't afford to go bankrupt. Uh, And so it's, you know, we, for the most part, you know, have a deeply embedded rule of law. But, you know, I go talk to people in Asia and talk about them not having rule of law, and they say, what about Chrysler? What about GM Uh, to us? So we got to be careful about lording it over people that, you know, we're so good. Sir? How many of these countries don't have a fraudulent compliance law? The reason I ask you is I was recently in Israel, and they know that the company with dead, and the company of it and I got the fortune <laughs> banks. On the table were shocked, say, Are
0: you kidding? Are we going to sue the banks for their willingness to lend? Because their mentality is that you know the world is responsible. Right? And so please count the fortune advance, <laughs> and, and uh, I was also uh, shocked to see that they were that you know how many of these
1: companies don't their fortune. Yeah, I, I don't have that off the top of my head, but it's a, I could have had another category of, you know, avoidance uh, statutes. A lot of them have it, but not in the robust way we have it. And, by the way, apropos to us maximizing value, ours is pretty robust. You know, I think you could argue both sides of that one, whether ours goes a little bit too far sometimes. Um, but um, I've done a little bit in Israel, so I know what you're talking about. But, um, you know, the U.K. has it. Australia has it. Um, India has it in their new... Um, system they put it in Singapore has it. Um, I know Germany does too. Um, Germ- a lot of these places don 't have like equitable subordination and uh, recharacterization, but they have some concept of preferences and some concept of fraudulent conveyance five banks and every one of the firms in the makes money on the banks there now you're into the what i call the extra statutory uh elements uh and that that is definitely an issue although you you do have some of the boutique firms that that's what they do they're the only ones willing to sue the banks but they'll never get hired by the banks Good question sir
0: you mentioned
1: india Yeah yeah. I, I, is that no, it's uh, people couldn't hear. Is asking about India and how's their new structure work. So they have a they call him an RP, a resolution professional. Uh, he's like an administrator, but he actually reports to a creditors committee, and the creditors committee is basically the big banks. Uh, and um, but that committee can't say never mind, don't do anything. So that you have to. The statute requires you to move the case forward. They can't just waive the defaults and let the companies be zombies. But the resolution professional works for the large financial creditors. They're still kind of working through how to deal with like, vendors and trade creditors and things like that. That's a complexity. They're, they're, uh, there's a big case there right now where the company was um, in the uh, home-building business, and hundreds of I- consumers, Indians, put, put down deposits on uh, homes and there's not big financial creditors in the case, and they actually amended the bankruptcy law to allow those guys to be part of the creditors committee, whereas before they wouldn't have been able to be, and they were the major creditors in the case. Uh, But the RP business in India is booming, um, and uh, you're seeing a lot of uh, folks getting into that, uh, and the big banks are still trying to figure out how to deal with it, but there's a finger in their back from their version of the Federal Reserve pushing the banks to not do what they've done for the last 10, 15 years, with a lot of these companies, that they just let be zombies. Other questions? Yep. How common is it to have a
0: uh, an entity like the U.S. Trustee in other other are their government a government agency in
1: order to take action? I don't think anybody else uh, has that system as I'm as I'm thinking about it. But you know what part of it is because we have the three branches of government, and they wanted to take the administration of the case out of the judge 's hands after putting my brother in law comment. Um, so you don 't i, I can 't think of anybody that has that. I think there 's a bunch of sort of extra statutory things again, take India where the government is quite involved, sometimes in front of the scenes but sometimes behind the scenes. Um, but yeah that 's a good question. Uh, I have not seen that system. Um, And remember, that system still doesn't apply in Alabama and North Carolina. (laughs) Thank you, Howell Heflin, and uh, I can't remember the other, uh, Jesse Helms. (laughs) Other uh, questions? All right. um, Hopefully this was uh, somewhat illuminating and not too exhausting running around the world. Thanks for having me.